Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to think through uh, your word, to think about how you have put it together, your great and glorious plan, that plan from all eternity that now has been enacted on the stage of human history, that we as such uh, insignificant, seemingly insignificant creatures, little sort of blips on the screen are part of that incredible plan. And as we heard just last hour of how we're more than just blips on the screen, we're image bearers. Uh, we are given an incredible and unique role uh, in creation under your sovereign lordship that uh, this has not been given to angels, this has not been given to any other created thing, but to us as those made in your image and likeness, those who are royal in so many ways, little kings and queens. And when we think of the great plan of redemption as it culminates in Christ, that your own beloved Son, God the Son, uh, took on our image. He became incarnate. He did not become an angel, but he became a man in order to redeem us and out of our helpless, hopeless estate and to restore us to what you made us to be in the first place. And we long for his appearing and his coming. We look forward to, uh, even, now, even now, even as the new creation has dawned, the consummation of that in an entirely renovated new heavens, new earth. Uh, what a glorious future that is ours, and even as we think through how your unfolding of the covenants um, help us to understand better uh, what the church is and who Jesus is and what his work is all about, uh, we pray that we would glory in such a great Redeemer, that we would give you, our triune God, all glory, honor, and praise. That is our desire today, so that we would be faithful that we would be obedient, that we would be those who uh, delight in you and live um, our daily lives in obedience and faithfulness to you, our great God. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for the good of the church. Amen. All right, now, putting together uh, what we're going to do here, we've looked at this morning trying to, if you were... The book that we put together, this would be sort of part one. That was this morning. Trying to introduce uh, covenants, why they're important, how they fit with biblical to theological conclusions. And we're moving to the theological conclusions. So biblical theology we talked about. And then part two, Peter did with laying out the biblical covenants in terms of uh, exegesis, trying to apply... Uh, looking at each of the covenants in their own context, redemptive historical context in the canon, placing it to what comes previous, how it ultimately unfolds in terms of Christ and the new covenant. Right? Uh, Peter reminded me at break, right, uh, in terms of exegesis, uh, seeking to put all of the diverse data together and show the interrelationships. And uh, in some sense, that hasn't been done in great detail. Uh, others have tried that somewhat, but uh, that was the goal, was to try to show all of these interrelationships and how these covenants um, ultimately find fulfillment uh, in Christ. Then part three, this is where we're going now, is to say, all right, uh, after a summary, chapter 16 was a summary chapter, 
and uh, trying to say, all right, kingdom through covenant, you know, what's, how do you pull all these pieces together? You've got to have some way of giving a kind of uh, overview of it. What's kingdom? What's through? <laughs> uh, how do the covenants unfold? Uh, and basically, the, you know, that one chapter is sort of a storyline of the whole Bible, and a lot more could be said, but, you know, working through the covenant, the progression of the biblical covenants. Then the last chapter, and it's incomplete, more needs to be done, uh, but trying to show, all right, uh, what's the benefit of this? Uh, how does this show itself in theological uh, conclusions? So here now is moving from, in some sense, if you put the book together, you've got exegesis, you work through specific texts. You're putting your whole canon together, your whole Bible together. Well, that's biblical theology. And now you don't just end there, and especially my interest. Peter's interest more is the exegesis to biblical theology. To me, right, uh, and I think he would agree too. But uh, to me, the, the biblical theology, putting the canon together, is, is not an end in itself. Right? It's a means to a larger end so that we may think rightly about God, draw conclusions, and do and I view the task of what we call systematic theology or Christian doctrine as that which seeks to apply the whole Bible to every area of our life. And it's applied in all kinds of areas of life, but we often do that in doctrinal areas, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, sin, uh, church, salvation, Christ, eschatology, those kind of things. But it can be applied everywhere. It applies to families and children and spending your money. I mean, all of that's a theological task of taking God's word, applying it to every area of life, and we do so from the canon, right, from the whole Bible, from the whole counsel of God, and then thinking through biblical covenants, we have to think through that in order to rightly apply. You can't apply scripture, just sort of pull a text out of context and say, oh, there, it comes over to me. You have to think through, okay, what's this text doing in its context? How does it fit through the biblical covenants? How does it now come over to me and apply to me as, as a believer, right? And then, of course, in systematic theology as well. It's not just how does it apply, but ultimately we proclaim uh, the Bible to people, right? We share the gospel with them. We take the gospel to the nations. Uh, we defend it, right? We defend it even in defense of the faith, both in evangelism and apologetics defense. You're defending the whole Bible. You're defending the message of Scripture, the gospel, who Jesus is, who God is, who we are in light of the whole canon, right? So there's the theological uh, task. Now, what we did here was uh, to try to say, all right, covenants, we said that they are the backbone of the Bible. Right? Can't understand fully how the scripture fits together until you think through them. Well, what implications does this have in a number of areas? And the areas we picked to focus on were picked specifically to deal with then the two sort of dominant views in the larger Christian world, evangelical world, namely dispensational theology, covenant theology, where we would differ. So in saying that, of course, it looks like, you know, we're enemies to the end, right? Because <laughs> you're always differing with them. But that's not the case. I mean, there's so much more agreement that we have yet. I mean, you do have to show where the differences are and why. Right? And, of course, these differences... Uh, aren't just, I mean, some of them are more minor than others and others are not, but they eventually lead to divisions among us, right? So we have whole denominations centered around these divisions. So we want to see how uh, an understanding of the covenants that we think is biblical and right 
uh, will contribute to trying to bring resolution on these matters, right? I mean, that's the ideal we should all have, to bring the unity of Christian faith and the faith once delivered the saints and agreement, if at all possible, and we realize the side of glory, that's probably not possible. There's so much invested in, in our views and this type of thing. But trying to then say, all right, how do we resolve these debates that have been ongoing? I mean, they're not new. Uh, but uh, how can we contribute to this and at least show a different way and why we disagree and provide some kind of rhyme and reason to it? So there were many other areas that we didn't cover that need to be covered, right? The whole application of the Old Covenant, the law, discussion of, a uh, very, very famous way of, of thinking of ethics, right? Uh, the moral law in the sense of the very common way of dividing up the Old Covenant, moral, civil, ceremonial. And then what comes over to us is the moral law, particularly as evidenced by the Ten Commandments. We're going to have to describe that a little differently because we view the Old Covenant as a package, right? It's a whole unit, it's a whole unit that we are no longer under covenantally. That doesn't mean uh, that we are not under God's demands and commands and laws and this type of thing, but laws not one for one uh, with the Ten Commandments. Right? And so we would have to unpack that a bit more. There's allusions to that, but Blake's done that, so you can look at his Law of Christ book. Right? Uh, Sabbath issue obviously comes up. Once you discuss Ten Commandments, debates at that point, uh, not only with our Presbyterian and Covenant people, but uh, within the Reformed Baptist community. That's a major dividing point and division. Uh, we are not Sabbatarian. We do not see the Sabbath working the way they do, but we'd have to give further argument and justification for that. And there's other books that do that. Uh, Deplying this to church-state relations. I mean, that's a crucial matter. Right? Uh, what the church is, what the state is, the domains uh, for each uh, there's constant um, uh, fights within Christian circles, especially the covenant uh, end of things of theonomy and how the Old Testament law applies to churches, to the state, to the government. And uh, those have to be looked at now through the biblical covenants and so on. So, I mean, there's all kinds of applications that need to be worked out. And uh, we're trying to put out an edited work um, that's due uh, to the publisher in, in September that tries to deal with some of these issues as a kind of further extension uh, of this with a few other people uh, brought on board to show how this shows itself out in different doctrinal areas. Now, what we covered in the book, we're just sort of hitting a few key points. And the points that you pick um, not only dealt with dispensational covenant, but also points that, uh, you know, I, in doing this chapter of my interest and and I want to get a lot of Christology in there, right? A lot of person and work of Christ. So that's that's the main bulk of it. And then showing its application to the church, right? So, you know, where these issues, the rubber meets the road, I, I, I illustrate, and I'll come to back just in a moment here, how this is helpful for understanding uh, who Jesus is, his glory, how it's presented right across the canon, uh, his person, right? What we normally talk in terms of who he is. I also apply it to his work. I think there's uh, important implications there. Then where the rubber really meets the road, I mean, on some of those issues, there's division. <laughs> but where the rubber really meets the road is on the nature of the church, right? And it's really the doctrine of the church where we see so much disagreement among Christians, right? So we see it not just in terms of the ordinances, right? Baptism issues, different views on Lord's Supper, but we also see it in terms of the very nature of the church. Is it a believing community, a regenerate community? Is it not? 
And, of course, that ties into you and your children and covenant theology. And, and then it spills over into future things, what we call eschatology. So particularly with our dispensational brothers and sisters, uh, you know, the role of Israel as a nation. Right? There's constant, you know, questions about that. Is there a future role for Israel as an ethnic people? The role of land? Uh, how do the Old Testament promises apply to us. And these are all important issues because ultimately grounding this is God's faithfulness, his promises, the confidence that we have uh, in the gospel and so on. So we, we tackled some of those issues and that's why um, you know people will go after us at those points because we're hitting uh, prized uh, views of each of these different theological perspectives. And of course that's where the sparks fly and, um, and you have to be prepared uh, for that. That's all right. Uh, now, um, let me just cover some of these areas. Uh, how would covenants now impact doing a theology? Well, we made a couple of comments in the book. I'm going to just mention this very, very briefly in terms of our doctrine of God. Right? But thinking through how the covenants unfold, culminate in Christ, I mean, you cannot... Um, doing that will affect how we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? Think of how the doctrine of the Trinity already is unfolded to us across the canon, how God has revealed himself from creation all the way through the covenants, the coming of the Son, the giving of the Spirit, the new covenant age. I mean, all of your Trinitarian understanding is built on the unfolding covenants. Even the attributes of God discussion. I have a colleague who says, you know, when you teach the attributes of God, you don't have to worry about thinking where these attributes are presented across Scripture. I mean, you could just read Psalm 139, God's uh, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, it's the same no matter what part of the redemptive history you're in. And there's a sense that's true, yet you see through the progression of the covenants, you start thinking of, say, grace. Right? Grace is in the old, yet you see grace fully displayed in a greater way in Christ and the new covenant and all of God's redemptive purposes. You see uh, questions each of justice, right? Uh, God's righteousness, justice. How do you understand that? Well, as you work through the biblical covenants, see it ultimately culminate in the cross. So, I mean, there's a greater appreciation, understanding of grace, justice, righteousness. Even on God's unchanging nature has to be thought through. What do we mean by that in light of the incarnation? Uh, in light of what Christ has done in bringing the new covenant age and so on. So even the attributes of God, I would say to you, I mean, you have to think through how God has disclosed himself in greater ways through the scripture, through the covenants, culminating in Christ, so that as you come to the New Testament era, the New Covenant era, we see God in all of his glory and majesty and wonder greater even than we see. It's not inconsistent with what's old, but it's there in a fuller disclosed way and so on. Now, Christology. Right? What I did here was I tried to... Ah, swap battery, okay. <laughs> well, if it's driving you nuts, it's driving everyone else nuts. Okay. All right, do I turn back on again? Or? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's been already popping, right? <laughs> there we go. Is that better? Chris, there he is. Good job. Okay. Now, in terms of uh, Christology, um, what I tried to do initially, and this was tied more to my own interests, I, I said this morning that uh, um, 
um, finished a work on the, the person of Christ, trying to think through this canonically and then theologically. Uh, and now you can pray that I get it edited. Um, it's, I've got to drop out 80,000 words. But uh, uh, <laughs> a little too long-winded. Um, what I try to argue here is that working through the Scriptures, working through the biblical covenants, gives you rightly who Jesus is. Right? So that's the first point in terms of Christology. Working through the biblical covenants reveals to us, we would say, the identity or the who-ness of who Jesus is, right? Whose identity is. And, of course, the church has confessed uh, through the ages, who is Jesus the Christ? Well, he is, the shorthand form is he is God the Son, right? He's the Son from eternity, one who shares the divine nature with the Father and Spirit. He's God the Son incarnate, right? He's not just, um, I encourage you not even just think in terms of he's the God-man. Oh, he's God the Son incarnate. He's the God the Son who became man. So that he is the one who is the second person of the Godhead who has now taken on our humanity for us and for our salvation. Well, how does Scripture teach this? Well, often what we do when we teach uh, these things and try to ground these things, we go to individual texts, which is, of course, inevitably you have to do that. That's perfectly good. But these individual texts are embedded in an entire storyline. So that my contention here is, is that as you work through creation ultimately to new creation, creation ultimately fall through the covenants to Christ, you see very clearly, right, how biblical Christology or who Jesus is laid out for us, right? So that his sonship, even as God the Son, right, as it's worked out, you know, there's fulfills typological patterns. He's the one who comes as Messiah. What kind of role does Messiah have? All of that is built off of the Old Testament data through the biblical covenants leading us then to Christ. As you come to the New Testament, you can say as the curtain of the New Testament opens, the Old Testament expectation of a Messiah to come who will inaugurate God's saving reign, usher in a new covenant age, is viewed, he is viewed as this one who will do so as the obedient son, as the one who is the fulfillment of all of the previous covenant mediators, who uniquely is not just another uh, David or another Adam or someone like this, but he ultimately is the son, right? And then you speak of his deity and his humanity, who's identified with the Lord, right? And so you have this working itself out through the entire Bible. And I think then if we do this, Right? It's not just a few texts here and there uh, that, you know, even when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and this type of thing, and they'll debate John 1 and that. No, it's the whole Bible that gives you the presentation of who Jesus is. Right? And so in, in the chapter 17, this is where I develop it, right? And try to then say, look, you start with creation. God is Lord, creator, sovereign one of, of, of the universe. And, of course, now you unpack then his creation of us, just as what Peter was doing with us as image bearers, us in our unique role, uh, us in covenant relation, Adam's fall. And, of course, Adam's fall now brings with it sin, death, destruction. And, of course, we have that initial promise in Genesis 3.15, that first gospel promise, right? that proto Euangelion, right? That first message. And it's very enigmatic, right? It's, it's not detailed in a whole lot of ways. But we know, in light of that context, that there is going to come one, right? We're not told who it is yet, but it is one who is the seed of the woman. It's 
It's going to be human. And of course, that's tied to all of the importance of image, right? We are God's image bearers. God's creation project is not scrapped, right? God's creation project will continue. It will, though, have to be reversed, right? Or the effects of sin and death will have to be reversed through one who will be a seed of the woman. And then the scriptures through the covenants will give more clarity as to who this seed of the woman actually is so that sin and all of its implications will be reversed so that God's kingdom, his saving reign will break into this world. So there is a kingdom, yet that rule is forfeited. And of course, that has to be restored and it will come through this one who is the seed of the woman. So that gospel promise, that first gospel promise is what governs your entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 out. And then as you work through the biblical covenants, right, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Israel to David, right, and as the prophets pick all of that up, you have more clarity as who the seed of the woman will be. The seed of the woman will then take on the kind of role that Adam, Noah, and all these other ones do, right? These covenant mediators ultimately begin to anticipate who this one will be, right? This Messiah, this anointed one, right? And so there you have the role of Israel as a son. What's Israel's role ultimately to bring God's rule to the world, to be a light to the nations? Well, this one will do that, right? He will do so in the Davidic role and usher in God's reign to this world, right? In that, right, he will be closely identified as you work through these covenants and through the Old Testament prophets, he will certainly be a man. Right? You can't have that without Genesis 3.15. Right? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, yet he will be closely identified with the Lord. Right? So that it'll be the Lord and the Son. And all that is given to you through this close relationship between the Lord and his covenant people, Israel, as a son. And then uniquely through the Davidic king who is son. So that father-son relationship, 2 Samuel 7 which gives you the establishment of the Davidic covenant. I mean, you have this relationship of the Lord to the king as a father-son relationship. That's not accidental, is it? So it's built all the way back on Adam, but it's ultimately being unfolded in greater ways. And of course, this is what the prophets will pick up. This is what the Psalter uh, will pick up and so on. And as you then work through the Old Testament, how is what's God's saving kingdom going to look like? Uh, what's How is it anticipated? Well, it then becomes identified ultimately with the new covenant, right? So you have all of these new covenant passages that is not just dealing with uh, just sort of individual salvation. That's true. But when this new covenant comes, you will have such a new era that it's identified with the new creation. It's identified with the giving of the Spirit. It's identified with all of this rule and reign that breaks into the world because it's reversing sin and death and all of its implications. In Jeremiah 31, then as it's just one passage among many, right? I mean, Jeremiah 31 has to be connected with Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the post-exilic prophets. As it, uh, I said uh, this morning, I think that as these covenants culminate in David, they then get projected all the patterns into the future. So all the prophets are picking up these themes and looking into the future. When they look into the future, they see the coming of the Lord and the King. Right? That's how it looks at the age to come. The Lord and the King will come. And what will he usher in? Wow, he will usher in 
the future age. He'll usher in the new creation. He'll usher in salvation. He'll usher in judgment. He will bring defeat to God's enemies. He will destroy sin and death. Uh, he will bring his rule and reign to this world. I mean, it's a beautiful package that the Old Testament holds out for hope, yet it does so in light of the failure of all these previous covenant mediators. So it won't come through David's. They're dead. It won't come through Moses. He never got into the promised land. Uh, It won't come through Abraham in that way. It'll come through that seed that will come through these individuals. But you have larger than life, the coming of the Lord through his king. But the king now takes on not only human note, but ultimately divine note as well. And of course, at the heart of the new covenant, I made mention of this on uh, Sunday as we looked at um, Hebrews chapter 8 in our service here at the church. At the heart of the new covenant, there's a lot of things. But at the heart of the New Covenant, and we cannot miss this because this is at the heart of the storyline of the entire Bible, at the heart of the New Covenant is forgiveness of sin, right? So when God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, 4, right, I'll make a new covenant. Not going to be like the old. At the heart of the New Covenant, they'll know the Lord, least the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sin no more. Now that... Now you begin to see the role. I mean, the covenants are doing many things, but they're also unfolding for you how redemption comes. That the heart of the problem is human sin, rebellion against God. Us in our image-bearing role have failed, and all of the covenant mediators who in some sense typify the one to come fail and are disobedient. And God must now raise, you know, make bare his mighty arm. He must now provide. And he must provide a specific one, a son. A son patterned after David, but greater. Patterned after Israel, but greater. One who is obedient even to death on a cross. Right? And of course, as the New Testament opens, you then have to ask in terms of who this Jesus is who comes inaugurating God's kingdom, who comes walking on the water, who comes... Uh, feeding the 5,000. I mean, all of his actions, all of his words. I mean, he's in a category all by himself. Right? He stands up in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just another Moses. Right? It's interesting. I still remember the story of a former colleague of mine. He mentions uh, he's at Wheaton College now, Daniel Block, and he mentions the story where at Wheaton College, they, um, the Christians get together with Jewish discussion back and forth. And the Jewish discussion will they'll look at a passage of scripture together, and um, uh, the Jewish will make a comment on it, and then the Christians will comment, and so it's Christian-Jewish dialogue. Well, the one time they were getting together, they were discussing the Sermon on the Mount, and the Christian got up and said, "Well, see, in this Sermon on the Mount, here is Jesus going on the Mount. Here is the new Moses, sort of a new Moses theme." And so he laid this out, and then sat down, and the Jewish fellow got up and said. I don't know what that guy's talking about. But this Jesus, when he does that at the Sermon on the Mount, thinks he's God. And he understood it far better than the Christian. Because if you work through the biblical... This isn't just another Moses. Moses, as important as he is, (laughs) Moses doesn't get in the promised land. Joshua eventually gets him in, but Moses is dead and gone. He's important in redemptive history, yet he points forward to someone greater. When Jesus stands up, I say unto you, this is authority of himself, bound up with the Father, 
the Spirit, right? I mean, this is not just a, he's a man, but he is the one who ushers in the very kingdom. He's the one who brings all of these Old Testament expectations to pass. And then you have to ask yourself, right, if he is the one, and then, you know, the upper room, I mean, the disciples, they didn't quite get this when he's celebrating the Passover. And he'll say, this is the blood of the new covenant. I mean, when you put the covenant in terms of its unfolding context, I mean, you then have to say, who does this person think he is? He's the one who is going to usher in, inaugurate a covenant that will bring such permanent forgiveness of sins. That in the old covenant, you know, you had that sin remembered day after day, year after year, but in this new covenant, here's one who says, I will put it away permanently. Well, of course, that's what's going on on the cross, right? You then have to think, when you put all of this in terms of the biblical storyline, you have to ask the question, who is this Jesus who ushers in the kingdom, who brings the new covenant promise of forgiveness, who you know brings all of God's salvation and judgment, all of the hope that none of these Old Testament figures could bring? He is none, nothing less than God the Son incarnate. He's the man, but he is the son from eternity. He is the Lord. And, of course, that's how New Testament Christology works. So that you have right from the very beginning, as the church moves to later confession. So in the great council of Chalcedon, that affirms, you know, the son is God equal with the father. Where does that come from? It comes from the whole Bible. Right? This isn't some add-on. Right? This isn't the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown interpretation of these things. I mean, it comes the deity of Christ is taught right from the very beginning, right from the Old Testament as it expects, anticipates the coming of Christ, right? Uh, so that uh, when it says that he's fully God, fully man, why do you need a man? Why do you need a redeemer, right? Well, it's all built on the covenant relation, the role of the image bearer and the failure of Adam and the need for another man, yet he must also be the Lord. I mean, all of these major, major themes is how the whole Bible hangs together. So understanding the covenants gives you a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a debate uh, today that's going on in evangelical circles that is trying to almost re- almost de-emphasize the deity of Christ. Now, they don't deny it. But it's almost as if it's so much emphasis. They say, we've so emphasized the deity of Christ, we forgot his humanity. Well, I'm not exactly sure what world we're living in that says that. I think it's the other way around, right? But they want to so emphasize the humanity of Christ and his role with the Spirit so that he is a kind of Spirit-empowered man who now, by the power of the Spirit, does all these things. Now, there's no doubt the role of the Spirit in Christ's life is crucial. It's a Trinitarian work, Father, Son, Spirit. Yet, I'm convinced here that the whole way the storyline of the Bible works is He is the Lord. He's not in a category just like you and I. He doesn't serve just as merely an example for you. He is the Lord who's in a different category. Yes, there's many things that serve as an example from Him. Yet he is unlike you in many, many ways, right? So you cannot minimize that. If you want a good example of that, look at his temptations, right? I've never been tempted to turn rocks into bread. And I doubt you have either, right? That very temptation. Yes, we can learn from his temptation, right? We can learn not to go our own way, to submit ourselves to God's word and 
and his will and so on. Yet that temptation is unique. Why is it unique? Because he's the one who brings all of these covenant mediation to pass. He's the one like an Adam. He is the one like Israel who does not fail. He in his obedient work is doing something you don't do. Right? So he's doing that so that there is now a new creation, a new covenant, forgiveness of sins, which is the grounding to everything that we see. Think of Romans 8, what we could not do in our flesh or in our sinful nature of the NIV, uh, you know, because uh, of, of our own sin, he did, right? God did by the giving of his son who obeyed the law who did all of these things for us, right? So you don't want to minimize anything of the uniqueness of Christ. He's fully God, fully man. The scriptural storyline lays that out very, very, very clearly. And the church has seen that over the ages, and it's right from scripture itself, right? Now, in terms of the work of Christ, well, how do the covenants illuminate this? Well, let me just mention a couple of things here. There's a huge discussion uh, today on the active obedience of Christ. Imputation, right? Uh, I want to argue strongly with the Reformation heritage, right? I don't want to see myself as different here. That in justification, right? In justification, it's God's declaration. Blake did this yesterday in terms of not new perspective or so, but God's declaration. God declares that ungodly people are just and right before Him. Justification involves not merely our wiping away our sin and forgiving of them. That's important. We're not just brought back to ground zero again or something like that. Uh, but we now stand in Christ. And of course, even that in Christ language is covenantal language. You cannot talk about the union of Christ apart from him as our representative and substitute. He is the head of the new covenant. So that we are in him and his righteousness is my righteousness. His righteousness has been now, and then you have legal categories, which are tied to covenantal categories. His righteousness is now mine. It's been imputed to me. So that his work now is that which in his life he obeyed. And of course, the obedience theme of Scripture is everywhere. Right? So he comes from the very moment you see him. He obeys his father's will. The very temptations are speaking of this. He's obedient. He's obedient in life. He's obedient in death. And by his representative work, which is, again, covenantal categories, he represents us. He is our substitute. Don't separate representation and substitution from one another. They go hand in hand because they're tied to the covenant mediation of this one. So that he now represents me in his life, he is my substitute in his death and his resurrection. I am now righteous in him. I'm forgiven of my sin. I am justified and I am secure. Right? I mean, all of that is great and glorious justification. Now, what is that grounded in? Well, it's grounded in the covenants. Right? It's grounded in the covenants where when you go back to the covenants, what we try to argue uh, in the book is there's a very common way of trying to divide up covenants in terms of um, unconditional, conditional, right? So certain covenants are viewed Abrahamic, for instance, or uh, the Davidic covenant, even the new covenant, is viewed as unconditional in the sense that God does it, you don't. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth in that. And then others will say, you know, like uh, there's a whole debate with creation, uh, you know, there's a conditionality there. 
that uh, the old covenant is conditional, right? So that if you obey, you live. If you die, if you don't obey, you die. Blessing and curses. So it's conditional. And then they divide up the covenants in this way. And our contention in the book is that's a little simplistic or a little reductionistic, right? Instead, what we then argue here is that as you work through the covenant relationship, God as Lord and King, who then enters into covenant relationship with us, us as image bearers, all the way grounded in creation, demands from us, and all of us, no matter who we are, perfect obedience. What else would God demand? He is righteous, just, holy. He demands from us obedience. We're his creatures. Adam is to render obedience, right? He's in a relationship with God, so we don't firm covenant of works in the old traditional sense of it, yet he is in relation with God. He is to obey. You have in Genesis 2, don't eat of that tree. You can have everything else, right? There's some command that's there. When you put all of Scripture together, we know that Adam's state was not a final state, right? We know in God's plan, it was ultimately leading to a glorified state in the future. So there is a conditionality there. There's an obedient demand. And as you walk through all the covenants, there's obedience demanded. Again, that's what you would expect. So whether it's uh, Noah, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Israel, whether it's David, they are expected to obey as we all are expected to obey. Yet, this is where the problem comes in. So God enters into covenant relationship. He is the one who makes promises and keeps promises. And so you appeal to, say, the Genesis 15, where it's the Lord himself that walks through, as Peter described, that covenant inauguration, the pieces. It's unilateral. He takes the promises upon himself, and that's glorious. I mean, that's that's our hope. Yet, even in that same very covenant, he demands obedience from Abraham. So that in the sense in which all the covenants are undergirding them all, God's faithfulness, God's promise, God must save, God must do it, yet he still expects from each one of us obedience. And of course, that's where the tension and problem comes. No, Adam doesn't obey. Noah doesn't come off too well. Abraham, I mean, he's a righteous man, he's justified. Yet, I mean, he's not perfectly obedient. Israel is really not perfectly obedient. Uh, and then the prophets and priests and kings and the leadership and David and the Davidic covenant. And of course, instead of now fragmenting the covenants this way, it's part of a storyline. What are you supposed to see in this? You're supposed to, God's teaching you something. What's he teaching you? He's faithful and you're not. He will keep his promises. He will act to save, right? And so as you come to the prophets post-Davidic covenant, what does God say? I will stretch forth my mighty arm. I will rescue. I will judge. I will save. Ezekiel 34. Right? Yet, I will do so through one who's obedient. But where's the obedient one? Well, the obedient one is in by his own provision. He's going to provide a king who obeys. He's going to provide an Israel who obeys. He's going to provide ultimately a greater Adam who obeys. And of course, that's where as you then come to Christ, I mean, he now is the one who obeys. He is the one who in the new covenant, the new covenant, is there obedience to the new covenant? Yeah, he obeys. He obeys even to death on a cross so that our obedience is tied to his obedience, right? And that becomes the grounding to a strong sense of the active obedience of Christ, his death on the cross is 
has, you know, as it applied to us in terms of our justification, and our hope is found here. This covenant mediator, all of the covenant mediators have failed, but he does not fail. And thus brings in a better covenant, a covenant grounded in his person, his work, all of his achievement, so that we now have security, confidence. You have a Romans 8 now making sense, right? Nothing can separate us the love of God in Christ Jesus because he did it, right? I mean, all of this comes now to him. He's the one who fulfills the Mosaic role. He's the one who fulfills Israel. He's the one who fulfills David. He's the one who does all of these things through his obedience. Obedience in life, obedience in death. So his life then doesn't become a charade. You know, he doesn't now get born into the world and at five years old go to a cross, right? No, he, he has a life that's lived. He does that for us as our great high priest, as our covenant representative, in all of these ways that Bible speaks of this, right? So I do think the covenants properly, you you have individual texts that you have to go to. Romans 4 is probably the best one that that lays out um, imputation of Christ's righteousness and and, and 2 Corinthians 5 and other places. But you also have a storyline. You also have it put within the covenant context. So it's not just a text here and there. It's an entire structure of the Bible. It's an entire way it's presenting the message of the plan of salvation now culminated in Christ. The other area we apply this to, and uh, this also came out in a book uh, in defense of particular redemption. Uh, from heaven he came and sought her. So I had, you know, it was a real privilege to be asked to be part of that. And uh, uh, what you find in Kingdom Through Covenant in this area was also put into that book as well. So you do double duty, which is great. And uh, in that book there, we were defending, uh, you know, particular redemption, definite atonement. How do you defend it? Well, obviously, it's a full textual theological argument that has to be made, right? And you have to look at world passages and all. I mean, you have to look at all of the debates surrounding it. So my uh, argument in there was just one piece of a larger argument. So this is not everything that could be said, right? But I do think it's foundational. My argument here was if we understand the nature of the new covenant, if we understand the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to. You have to. I'll say, you have to. And I have others who disagree with me on this, but I, I don't understand how you then can say that Christ's work doesn't both. And this is at the heart of definite particular redemption. And this is why we glory in it. That work on the cross by our great high priest, our new covenant head, pays for our sin. It achieves our redemption, justification, propitiation, reconciliation, all that the Bible says. We need a redeemer at the heart of the new covenant who will bring full forgiveness of sin. His work puts away our sin in full. God doesn't grade on the curve. He pays for our sin in His Son. God the Son takes God's own righteous requirements in Himself and pays for our sin. And, don't forget the and, He not only pays for our sin, puts it away, secure, you know, it does all of the achievement of the cross, but He also, by that same work, brings about everything necessary for that work to be applied to those whom he died for. Definite atonement brings two ideas that you must not separate. The achievement of that cross and 
its application to those to whom it's intended. So that you have in the work of the great high priest, achievement and application together. Now, they're different ideas. You still have to have it applied. But the application of the cross by the Spirit is grounded in the work of the great high priest in his new covenant sacrifice. Now, no view that holds to a universal atonement can put both of those things together. Because eventually, in the end, and I have those who, probably in our circles, those we run with will say, in terms of Calvinist circles, yeah, I hold to unconditional election and total depravity and these things, but I hold to a universal atonement. Christ put the sins away of everyone, all without exception, but then it's the work of the Spirit to only apply it to the elect. And so it's often presented today in terms of multiple intentions, so there's an intention of God to put away the sin of the elect in the cross. There's an intention to put away everyone's sin in the cross. But there's, all, there's also an intention to take the work of the Spirit and only apply it to the elect and not for everyone whom Christ died for because it was a universal death. The problem with this is, is multiple. But the problem with this ultimately is, and this may seem strange, but I think it's correct, is it takes Christ's high priestly work and takes it totally out of its covenantal context. So when you put it in its covenantal context, from old to new, we're talking about priestly work. Priestly work is typological. So the Old Testament priests foreshadow something of what the great high priest will do, but Christ's great high priestly work is greater. So you have the tree walking through the covenants, and you also have typological patterns walking through those covenants. In the Old Testament, no Old Testament high priest. No Old Testament high priest. No Levite ever was atoning for the sins of the Canaanites. They worked under the covenant. Right? Those who were atoned for right, were those who were under that covenant obligation, Right? those who brought the sacrifice. Now, you could still say, and this is where our Presbyterian brothers and sisters go, is that under that old covenant, you have a mixed community. Right? You've got the elect and non-elect, the remnants, Israel and not Israel within that community. Now, with that said, I mean, it's still not a universal atonement. Right? But within that community, you have believer, unbeliever seemingly benefiting from that. Yet, this is where it's very, very important to think about the progression of the covenants. It's important to think of typological patterns that even under that old covenant, it's shadow, it's temporary, it's, it's never permanent. It's, it points forward to something. It speaks of a particular work of the priest. Yet, even in that work of the priest, if Christ had never come, there'd be no salvation. Uh, those sacrifices, you can do them all day you want. No blood of bull and goat will save you. Now, did God demand it? Yes, he was teaching them. That's how they ex- expressed their faith and obedience to God. Now, all that's true. Yet in the end, it wasn't an effective sacrifice. That's why in the end, the new covenant holds out hope for a full payment of sin because sins have been passed over. Uh, there is the question of God's justice, Romans 3, 21 and 26 says. I mean, and God is just. He will not overlook sin. So there will come a full payment for sin. So that under the new covenant, there is an effective payment for sin. There is a definitive payment for sin. And so on. But as you work from Old Testament priest, it's not universal. Now, as you come to New Testament, New Covenant, right? For whom does Christ die for under the new covenant? Well, New Covenant people, who are Christ's people under the New Covenant? They are a 
regenerate people. They are a people who have the Spirit. They are a people who, I mean, you think of all the ways that the New Covenant is described in the New Testament. To be in the New Covenant is to be in union with Christ. To be in the New Covenant is to have the Spirit. To be in the New Covenant is to be justified. To be in the New Covenant is to be adopted. I mean, you cannot have, well, I'm in the New Covenant, but I'm really not justified. It's impossible, regardless of Richard Pratt, right? who argues that the New Covenant has been inaugurated somewhat in the church, and there's a little bit of forgiveness of sins, and uh, some of it's here, but not in the future. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. So the New Covenant is here so that now all of the constellation of images and, and teaching from the Old Testament is now, we are the new creation, even though we await the new creation. We are those who have these benefits now. Christ is the head and new covenant mediator of this, uh, of his priestly work is of the new covenant, and those in the new covenant are joined to him by faith, those who have experienced these things. And it's a particular work so that his work now not only achieves, but his work also secures the very work of the Spirit to apply it. Right? So that this priest does not fail in his work. And of course, that's always been at the heart of particular redemption, right? Why do I want to strongly maintain particular redemption? Not just to be a party spirit, but the cross effectively achieves what it's set out to do, and Christ does not fail in that achieving and application work to us. Right? Now, the only way you can get around that, and I have colleagues who do get around this, um, the only way you get around this is you have to now and there's all kinds of other theological things underneath this that you always have to say. It was a Latin phrase, caveat emptor, right? Buyer beware, which you buy into. Um, you eventually have to have persons of the Godhead doing counter purposes. You don't have a unified work of the Trinity. You don't have from the Son's cross work, achieving work, that which actually grounds and secures the work of the Spirit. The New Covenant Age knows nothing, nothing of the Spirit's work independent of the Son. Right? The Son's work is to bring the work of the Spirit. Right? So these are all bound up with one another. So you still have to wrestle with a number of passages. Uh, there's still difficulties that you have to think through and so on, and I don't think those difficulties uh, are insurmountable. I think they're, they can be dealt with contextually and so on. But this is what I would contend is the greatest sort of grounding theologically. If you think through the covenants... Christ's work has to be viewed as particular. It achieves. It accomplishes. It actually grounds the work of the Spirit. It secures all of his death, resurrection, is now applied to us. Now, that happens in history. It's not automatic, right? Yet it will happen. God's elect will come to salvation because Christ's work does not fail, right? And to somehow say that he now universally pays for sins and then it's only applied by the Spirit, ultimately you have an ineffective covenant. It's not ineffective, right? The new covenant is that which actually achieves what it's set out to do. Now, those were areas of, in terms of the work of Christ, person of Christ. I mean, those are glorious areas where these covenants, I mean, as you think through the storyline, I mean, again, this is nothing new, but it's sort of trying to put sort of definition on it. I mean, it brings clarity as to who our Redeemer is. It brings clarity as to his work on our behalf. It brings a way of, uh, of trying to resolve uh, the debates. Um, again, on the extent of the atonement issues, right? I mean, it's very, 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 very rare to hear someone who denies particular redemption and ever speak covenantally. Because they can't, right? 
they have to eventually have to speak outside of those categories. But the biblical categories, this goes back to this morning, the biblical categories to do biblical theology properly is to follow the Bible's own presentation of itself, its own categories. You cannot divorce yourself from it. You've got to think God's thoughts after him and how they are presented to you. Now, the last areas, and these are more familiar, and I'll just summarize them and leave the book because uh, we, always, we always appreciate people buying our book. So, yeah. I've got five kids, and they like to go to university. Um, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Uh, this is where it shows up a lot. And our primary discussion here uh, is, is looking at our covenant, brothers and sisters. So that if we walk through the biblical covenants, you have to have to say, and I think rightly, that um, the Old Testament Israel, um, as it is under the Old Covenant, is structured differently than the church. The nature of that Old Testament Israel, the people of God, is not exactly the same as the New Covenant people of God, right? Now, that's not to say there's a radical difference between them. True Israelites, the uh, Israel within Israel, are all part of the people of God. Right? They were justified. They were new God under that covenant and, and ultimately anticipating the coming of Christ. So there's continuity. There's language of the New Testament that applies the assembling language and people language and covenant language to both Israel, church. And so there's, there's continuity. There's one people of God. There's not two peoples of God. There's one people of God. Yeah, I mean, you've got to do justice to the changes, right? So as Christ comes as the head and mediator, as Israel ultimately finds fulfillment in him, and the problem with, I think, both dispensational and covenant theology is it misses the intervening link as you go from Israel to church, and both of these systems do it differently, right? So dispensationalism tends to separate Israel church. Covenant theology tends to so unite them that they're not different, well, we contend here, and again, this is not anything new, but we try to lay this out, is what we need to go in terms of the covenants and the typological patterns is you need to go from Israel. Israel ultimately goes back to Adam. So Adam to Israel to Christ. Adam to Israel to David to Christ. Right? I mean, all of the covenant mediators go to Christ. Right? So he's the great David. He's the true Israel. He takes on that role. He is the new man of the new creation. He's the one who brings all of that to pass. So it's going to him, then to us. Right? So that was the importance this morning of talking about how these typological patterns work through the covenants. So that as you now move from the people of God, Israel, the Old Testament, reaching fulfillment in Israel in some sense becomes a type and pattern of Jesus, just as David does. And David, of course, takes Israel as a corporate entity and crystallizes it in an individual, right, as representative of the nation. I mean, that's how you move from the sort of the corporate to the individual through the Davidic covenant. So that Christ now comes as true Israel, true David. His people aren't you and your children, back from the Abrahamic covenant, right? His people are people who have been born of the Spirit. His people are those who are in union with Him, which means uh, a new covenant relation, uh, justification, forgiveness of sin, all of these things. Those are people who are people who are regenerate, believing people, right? So that that's why this transforms even then the ordinances, 
you cannot move, and the problem, the fundamental problem of covenant theology moving from circumcision to baptism is it fails to treat each of these things in their covenantal context. So that it fails to treat circumcision in its old covenant context, rooted back to Abraham, and how that unfolds through the covenants, reading culmination in Christ. Circumcision functions in the old covenant, back to Abraham, as primarily a physical marker. It distinguishes them from the nations. They are to be this new Adam. They are to be this one who lives out this in the world. Circumcision also now takes on other notions as well. It takes on a strong point of you don't just need the physical act, you need a new heart. And that goes comes very strongly through. It functions in a number of ways. It also functions, I think, in a very strong typological way that that uh, the male is circumcised. Ultimately, the last great covenantally significant circumcision in the Bible really is Christ. It's interesting that it's recorded for you in the, in the Gospels. Not many things of his early life are, but in some sense, he brings all circumcisions to an end. In that seed, why is the male marked? I mean, we're guessing here, but I mean, part of that is also to mark out the male line, to mark out that seed, to mark out that promised one. He now comes and fulfills that role perfectly. So circumcision now in Christ and the new covenant now reaches, ultimately, he is the end of the road. We need new hearts, which he now brings in the new covenant era. And the new covenant community is now transformed as a regenerate people, joined to him by faith. So that baptism in the New Testament signifies not the same thing as circumcision. Circumcision points forward to these realities. It speaks of them as a physical nation. Baptism signifies one is in Christ. One is a believer. One is born of the Spirit. One has all of these things that we then talk about in terms of Christian salvation. So that's why with our Presbyterian and Covenant friends and brothers and sisters, I mean, we divide on this issue. And uh, this issue will continue to divide us because it's a pretty difficult one to get over. Uh, we then view the church differently, how we function as a church, uh, implications for, you know, our governing one another, of a believing entity, a congregationalism under, uh, at its heart. Leadership, yes, but there's ultimately a congregation at heart, a believing people. Uh, how we discipline people. Uh, we discipline them because uh, they are supposed to act like they are in Christ, right? It's hard to discipline unbelievers. Right? Uh, it's hard to discipline unregenerate people uh, when you got them in your midst, right? You're assuming that they are professing faith. You're assuming that they know the Lord. You're assuming that they are to act in a certain way, and you warn them to act in that way, and you encourage them to act in that way. I mean, there's all kinds of church practices that uh, come from this, as well as then the ordinance issue. And all of that is resolved ultimately covenantally. Right? So thinking through how the covenants relate how the signs of the covenants, how the structure of the covenant community uh, unfolds through redemptive history is the way, ultimately, you have to get at these divides, right? So we can't just appeal to a text here and there. We have to ultimately appeal to the entire meta-narrative, the entire storyline. Most, most of our debates are there, right? So I, I'll finish with this one. I, in, in, in contributing to that Definite Atonement book, uh, the two um, editors, the Gibson brothers, really nice guys, David and Johnny Gibson in England. Uh, David is a Presbyterian minister. He used to be a Baptist, uh, became Presbyterian minister, and he's sort of interested in... in uh, uh, he says, oh, I disagree with you. I like your argument. Um, and so we had a back and forth on, on baptism. We got to the point. It was really nice because you often don't have... <laughs> Uh, people that just even want to talk about these things in a sane, kind way. Um, but he was very, very kind and says, you know, eventually we got to the point where we understood where each one was coming from, 
how we were putting the entire Bible together. And so now the issue would be to sit down, have a cup of coffee, uh, go to Starbucksville or whatever we got in town, Panera, and, um, and then actually sit down and say, all right, we understand each other. Now let's go to the specific text. Let's now see whether your construction of the, how the Bible fits together really fits. Can, you know, how do you do justice to this, 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 right? And, and that's then how we try to resolve those differences. And so I look forward to trying to, uh, to do that down the road. But at least we had a point of, yeah, we understand one another. We understand why we differ. We understand we've laid out our assumptions here, and we're going to now try to argue from the whole Bible through the covenants why your position is not going to be sustainable at point after point after point after point, right? Well, those are some of the areas where this discussion is significant, right? It leads to theological conclusions. These are very practical conclusions about how we function and, and, and are with one another in the church how we think of Christ's work, how we then apply it, as he said, the law to us today, and how we live as believers, right? Uh, the early church had to wrestle with these same matters. We are still doing it, right? But the privilege is, is, right, to be able to do so, to be able to, in the end, see how all of this, right, is not just an exercise in an interesting discussion, but in the end, it leads us to glory in our Redeemer, right? To give thanks for what God has done, the Father has done in giving His Son by the Spirit so that we then come to know Him, glorify Him, long for His appearing, and say, um, you know, we want to know Him in a greater way. That's ultimately our desire in all of this, to understand the whole counsel of God, to think His thoughts after Him, to do so for our good as individuals, yes, right? I mean, our relationship with the Lord, but ultimately for the church, the health of the church, the faith once delivered to the saints, and our witness to the world. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to our next phase. Heavenly Father, there's so much that we could say regarding how all of these covenants and how the Word of God, as you've given it to us, uh, is to be worked out in our individual lives, our daily lives, our family lives, our church lives, how we are to think rightly about you, how we are to think rightly about uh, your son and all that he has done for us. We know that among Christians and very close brothers and sisters to us, there is disagreement in these issues. And we do pray that uh, we would know where to... Um, agree and know how to rejoice in that which we have so much in common, uh, yet also and when we do disagree that we'd be willing to, to think through these matters carefully, that we'd be bringing all of our mind and heart to the test of your word, that we would um, uh, reform what we think in light of scripture and be willing to do that because your word uh, is our authority. Uh, we do not want to think wrongly about what you have revealed, we want to think rightly, uh, so that you will receive all glory, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will be praised, and the church uh, will grow in maturity. The church will not be tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and every debate and issue, but that will grow mature in Christ so that we may be a witness to this world, this poor lost world. Help us never to forget that uh, all of these discussions in the end uh, are to lead to us glorifying you and to taking the gospel uh, to our neighbors, our family members, uh, the nations. 
so that they will come to know you as the only true God. They will come to know their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. They will not know you just as judge, but will know you as Savior and Lord. That is our desire. And lead us to that end, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.